first started coming on the scene, one of the things that phrases that he got really known for is the phrase discipline equals freedom. I liked it so much I got the t-shirt. Um, yeah, but what he meant by that is that if we can learn to control ourselves, we can free ourselves from all sorts of things that hold us back. For example, if we learn to exercise some financial discipline, we can free ourselves from debt and from living paycheck to paycheck. But you know, if we buy every new shiny guitar we see, <laughs> instead of trading for them, like I did, right. no money exchanged hands, um, we can't enjoy that freedom. If we exercise chocolate chip cookie discipline, we free ourselves from blood sugar spikes and nasty health consequences. I'm still working on that. <laughs> Discipline probably in our society has kind of fallen on hard times. We're constantly told you should just do what feels good. That you should just live whatever you, according to whatever your feelings are at the time. Whatever you, if this is how you feel, you should just go for it. Um, and this is especially true. Maybe it's always been true. I don't know. I haven't lived for all time, so I'm not sure. But maybe uh, the idea that you know, when short-term pleasure is high, we tend to like that, um, especially when the bill for that pleasure will not come for a long time. When I was in my 20s and 30s, which now seems like a very long time ago, I don't think, Lewis, doesn't that seem like a long time ago? I was I was 30 when I met him. 30. You guys came in there. I was 32, I think, when I met Lewis. And I mean, that was a long time ago, right, bro? <laughs> we were a lot younger then. Um, yeah, I'll be older than you here in another few days. Just I'm a lot of your elders. Don't forget. Right, right. Lewis's birthday is like three months after mine. So. Um, but you know, I wish I would listen to the doctors and other people that told me to get in shape and discipline my eating back then, because I'm going to tell you what, in your 50s, the path is much steeper, much harder. Well, as we continue on in chapter 2 of 1 John this morning, we're going to see how discipline is crucial to bringing us freedom in our spiritual lives. These, these concepts are related. Now remember chapter 2 that we got into a couple weeks ago is concentrated on the first the idea of living in the light and not in the darkness. The darkness is the path of sin, the path away from God, whereas the light is the path of love that makes us more like Jesus. Just like we sang the song, I want to be like Jesus. That's the path of light, the path of love, the path we need to be on. And we saw how, how we're seeking to live as followers of Jesus is a really good indication of our spiritual state. And the basic rule we learned is simply to love God and love other people. That's where it all starts. Now we also realize we're going to sin. And when we do sin, when we sin by choosing something other than loving God or loving other people, which most of our sins a lot of times kind of roll around with that, we have Jesus, who is the one who is on our side. He does not abandon us. He is always for us. The one who paid for our sin in our place, and he stands in our place in the eternal court and declares, I died for that. Whenever we fall prey to temptation, he does not abandon us or leave us, but he is on our side. Now, last week, we kind of zoomed in on how loving others 101 
is to love those who together with us have a share in Jesus, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to love other followers of Jesus, and especially those whom we worship together with in our local church. We're to be on the path of loving one another. And it is the love of one another that Jesus himself tells us we should be known for. That's what we should be known for. It's how well we love one another. We don't need to be known for extremist politics or for infighting with one another or any of those kind of things. We should be known for how well we love one another, which is attractive to people who don't know Jesus. Anybody can go out in the world and get all forms of nastiness and fighting and being teased and bullied and treated like junk. We don't need that. We need to show people how it is to love one another. Now John's going to continue with another exhortation about sin in this next part of chapter 2. But before he does, he wants us to remember who we are. Look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You know, all this talk in, about living in the light and not in the darkness and avoiding sin and, you know, are you living for Jesus and are you loving other people and all that kind of stuff, these, these kind of tests that John throws at us, they, they can get a person down. You might start to look at yourself and go, as you 
you want to go, he'll go. <clears throat> Through Christ, we've over, overcome the evil one. We've overcome Satan. I like that idea. The Bible says he's out there crawling around like a lion, looking to devour somebody. But remember, Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And then he tells us we have the word of God abiding in us. And that's pretty awesome, too. That can uh, really change us. You know, in prepping, I, was, I should have put one of these pictures up there. I was kind of too embarrassed to. But in prepping for my dad's funeral, I had to go through a lot of old pictures. Because I was looking for pictures of my dad that we had. And I did not realize the gigabytes and gigabytes of digital pictures that I have. And um, how can I say this? They are not the most organized. <laughs> But there were some pictures in there from b before that um, are when I was really overweight. I mean, I realize I'm still overweight, but there were the pictures in there of when I still weighed 306 pounds on my little 5'2 frame. You probably, I know this comes as a shock to all of you, I'm not that tall. <laughs> what? No. I know. You're as surprised as I was to find that out. <laughs> But imagine, I mean, imagine I was like, you know, 80 pounds heavier than I am now on this short body. Um, I can barely bench press the bar. So I've made some progress, even though more is required. And I think sometimes we need to remember how far we've come spiritually, just like I've got to remind myself that I've come far physically. We talk a lot about growing in Christ, but that doesn't negate celebrating how far we've come. Some of you have known long enough to see how you're even more Christ-like now than you were 20 years ago. Hopefully that's true of me also. And it's good to acknowledge that, I think, and to thank our Lord for his work in our lives. Now one thing that can derail that progress for any of us, though, to get back to kind of what John's going to say, is when we are unable to discipline our desires. See, there's a war of desire going on in each of us. Between loving various things in the world of loving God. And John picks up that theme in verse 15 when he talks about the world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So in this verse, John is going to introduce a new dichotomy, right? Up till this point, it's been darkness and light. Now we have God in the world. But to get kind of the meaning here, we need to understand the different ways that the Bible uses this term world. Sometimes, in the Bible, the word world is just world. For God so loved the world. The creation, the sum of what is called, you know, by God in Genesis, very good. It's just, just the same way we use the word world, sometimes the Bible uses the world that same way. The world, just people and the trees. But Jesus, Paul, and Peter also, as well as John, obviously, here, <clears throat> use this word another way. Sometimes the world refers to the, the system of sin and rebellion to God under the guidance of the evil one. So look at Jesus' words in John 14, 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He's talking about the right, devil, the world, ruler of this world. evil part of the world. Paul in Ephesians 
Chapter 2, verse 2. It's talking about in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Their world, again, is, is, has to do with the bad parts of the world, the sinful part, right? The course of this world is, is under the power of Satan, and it's, it's disobedience. It's opposed to God. And Peter, in 2 Peter 2.20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, there's any of the world gets something defiled in the sin of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. So when we have there and we get sucked back into the world, into the, the defilement of the world, it's the, the sin, the rebellion, the disobedience, it's, it's a bad thing. So in all those passages, the world, it has to do with that, that which is opposed to God. The system of sin that constantly is in rebellion against the holy God. I find it helpful when I think about sin. To think of sin as both action and agency. Sometimes when we're talking about sin, we simply mean a sinful action or a sinful word. It's a sin. We're rude to our spouse. We tell a lie to a police officer who pulled us over, hoping to get out of a ticket. I hear somebody laughing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Tells me they probably tried it. I bet you it didn't work. Some of the older versions you know, and in fact, if you were like me, 
and you grew up on the King James Version. How many of you grew up with the King James Version? Right? Okay. You remember this is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Right? That's how the King James translates it. Um, desire translates the family of words in Greek from the word epithumia. And the word itself is not a positive word. There's no positive or negative to this word. It's just the word for desire. It adapts its meaning according to the object desired. So for example, how many of you like to go fishing, Tommy? Yeah. <laughs> Tommy likes fish? That's awesome. no. Tommy, Tommy loves to fish. Tommy talks about fishing a lot. It's true. It's okay. It's good. I'm glad she likes to fish. Um, how much do you think about fishing? which is a horribly deceptive practice. <laughs> because there you are. And here's a fish. And the fish is just out there swimming in the river, in the lake, right? We used to go fishing when I, when I lived in Pennsylvania. We used to go up to Erie, Pennsylvania to fish for steelhead. Do you know what steelhead are? Big, big right? And you can see them. They're in the river, right? It's, the water's cold and you wear, you wear chest waders and you got to get out there. How you fish for how you fish for steelhead? You get out there in the water. You get everything there, and then you got to get really still because they, you can see them right out there in the water, like these black submarines, right? And they're huge. And you get out there and you kind of cast out your line with your bait on it, and you got to be real still because they they are sensitive to everything going on in the water. If you take a step, they're gone, right? Okay, so you got to deceive. You got to deceive the steelhead, and that's the thing about fishing is deceptive because all this poor fish wants is some lunch, and there's the fish out there in the water. He just wants some lunch, and you show up, and you're going to give him lunch, except your lunch comes with string attached <laughs> and a hook, and so there's that poor little steelhead, and he's out there like a little black submarine in the river, and Tommy's there with his uh, with his fishing line, and he casts out. And the steelhead's like, oh, I'm really hungry. And that looks really, really, really tasty. And he swims up and he grabs that. And right as he grabs it, bam! Tommy pulls back. He hooks that steelhead. And the fight is on. Because let me tell you, these things can fight. These things can fight. It's fun to catch steelhead. So anyway, now the desire for that worm, or for that, for that fish to have that worm, is a natural desire, isn't it? There's nothing evil in the worm's desire to have some lunch. But what happens is his desire takes over, and you snag him, and pretty soon his <laughs> desire for the lunch becomes your lunch. Because there's nothing like filleting out a steelhead on the shore and building a fire and cooking him right there for outside the 
Sexual expression is good. God made it. God didn't make anything bad. And sex was God's idea. So if anybody tells you sex is bad, they're wrong. But there's a context and a place for the expression of sexual desire. And he's given us that because God created marriage also. Chocolate. Chocolate clearly got to be a gift from God. <laughs> Not just from the Swiss, but, but from God. Yeah. You know, after you've had Swiss chocolate, yeah. eating that Hershey's just is not. German chocolate is the best. Yeah. Isn't that the best? Swiss. It's great. Swiss chocolate. <laughs> anyway. Chocolate's a gift from God. But eating a half a dozen chocolate chip cookies in one city is gluttony. Okay? Undisciplined physical desire leads to all sorts of problems. It leads to addictions and health issues and a willingness to do whatever is necessary to fulfill those desires, right? Starts out, drug addiction starts out, somebody just tries something. And pretty soon they get hooked. And pretty soon they're, you know, stealing stuff and selling it at the pawn shop to try to pay for their drugs. Disordered desire. If it was not for the lust of the flesh, the disordered desires, <coughs> prostitution and the trafficking of young girls wouldn't exist. But because of the horrible links that disordered desire can take people, those things exist. Now the desire of the eyes refers to the desire for material things, for stuff. Like stuff. You can get the idea about what the, des the desire of the eyes means if you look at some of the lyrics to Ariana Grande's song, Seven Rings. How many of you like Ariana? Anybody besides me? Okay. No, seriously, if you've never listened to Ariana, four and a half octave range. That is almost unheard of. Her voice is the voice of an angel. Her songs, <laughs> questionable. The voice is amazing. Listen to these lyrics from the song Seven Rings. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it. Whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. They say which one. I say, nah, I want all of them. The whole song is like that. I had to edit out some of the lyrics because you say some of the things in church. Anybody that knows that song knows what line I edited out of there. <laughs> All those ads we see are designed to play on our desires for things which can take a lot of forms. The problem, of course, comes in when money or the things that money can buy become more important than God. That's the desire, disordered desire of idolatry. When our desires lead us to do things that God has clearly forbidden. Stealing, cheating others so we can have money. Right? The Bernie Madoffs of the world. Obsession with money and the trappings of success, those things are seen as, as a positive in our society most of the time. They are not. If you've ever seen the old movie Wall Street, right, with Michael Douglas, he plays a character named Gordon Gecko, and his famous line is, greed is good. No, no it's not. The Bible says it's not. It's not good. In God's economy, success and money and the trappings of those things are meant to be in their proper context. 
thing, the pride of life, is the desire to exalt ourselves over others, how we see one another compared to ourselves. Now, wanting to be better is not a sin. I want to be better. I want to live better. I want to be a better preacher. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better husband. I want to be better. Our wanting to be better, though, if it starts to create friction with others or causes us to look down on them, becomes a disordered desire. Or when our desire for our way conflicts with others because we think we are better or smarter or more attractive or whatever than they are. Sometimes the pride of life expresses itself in anger. Now, anger can be righteous and empowering, right? It can be in, in its right content. Jesus got angry. Jesus never sinned. He got angry. But it has to be the right context. Sometimes the pride of life leads to a sense of entitlement. Where we think we deserve certain things because of who we are or what we've done. Racism and sexism, those are pride of life issues. If you think because of the color of your skin or because of your gender you're better than somebody else, you're wrong. Those are pride of life issues. Some, be, some people are just, I mean, it's it's gotten bad. Maybe it's always been bad. I don't know, but I'm telling you, it's gotten bad. I'm going to tell you a story. This is great. I went in the other day, talking about the lust of the, the lust of the flesh. Apparently, Thursday was National Pizza Day. Did anybody else know this? Randall, you knew this? Okay, well, my, my wife says to me, oh, it's National Pizza Day today. See, that's my wife's code for saying, I want pizza for lunch. My <laughs> wife would never say to me, I want pizza for lunch. She would say, hey, did you know it's National Pizza Day? <laughs> so I was, I had to run up here and do a couple things. And so I was like, I, I went and I, I ordered myself one of those big New Yorkers from Pizza Hut, right? got two different kinds of pepperoni on it. It's kind of big with real, real thin crust, you know, so that you can fold it like a New York-style pizza. You ever gone to New York, gone to Manhattan, had a New York-style pizza? You're missing out. Okay, it's great. You go to New York, and you, get, you buy one slice, and it's flopping over the plate, right, and you fold it up. That's great. Anyway, so I go to pick up a pizza. I walk into the pizza hut down here on University Avenue, and um, I pay for my pizza. The guy brings it out, and he looks at me, and I, and I mean, I'm not entirely sure that the dude, dude uh, he was kind of a wake and bake sort of dude, if you know what I mean. Um, I don't mean bake on the pizza, I mean he was kind of baked. But anyway, he comes up and he goes, oh man, I'm really sorry about your pizza. Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, when I was cutting it, he's like, I realized I, I didn't cut it evenly. And a couple of the slices are really big, and now some of the ones around it are kind of small. And I'm looking at it like, this is an issue. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, my brain is trying to comprehend this, and, the, and I go, it's still the same number of square inches of pizza. I think he goes, yeah, yeah, but he goes, you would not believe how many people, if the pizza's not cut evenly, will scream at you about how their pizza's cut. And I'm thinking to myself, you're telling me that somebody has enough time and energy to worry about how the pizza's cut? Okay. You know what? If you're going to mistreat the sort of wake and bake, sort of half stone pizza guy <laughs> over how the pizza's cut, yeah, I don't even know what to do with that. Okay? That's entitled. That, that is just, I don't know, the reason
to know he was kind of kind of not with it. I was wearing my Michigan jacket, and he goes, and I told him, I said, dude, that I could care less. It's no big deal. I said, long, I'm getting the same pizza the way I'm wonderfully happy just having pizza. He's like, oh man, I really like you, except for that jacket. <laughs> and I like, oh, he goes, I don't like Michigan. But then he goes, I like Green Bay. <laughs> and I didn't want to point out that this is a college team. And you know, at that point, I just wanted to eat my really big slice of pizza or one of a couple of little small ones, you know, whatever. The pride of life can also express itself in envy or coveting, right? We see what our neighbor has, we see somebody else has something, and we suddenly, we need that, or we want a better one. And you know, this is a big enough problem that God felt it was necessary to make a specific commandment against it in the Ten Commandments. That's how big of a problem that is. The idea of coveting, of envy. So we need to develop some self-discipline in these areas. That's where the freedom from this kind of sin is going to come from. And John gives us a way to free ourselves from these insidious desires that can easily trap us and take us over. So here's how not to get trapped in the three spheres of the lust of the world. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now remember, we've been set free from sin by the work of Jesus. So when we come at any of this stuff, we, we know we've been set free from, the, from sin. Romans 8.2 says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're set. You're free. Okay? But being free from sin ontologically does not necessarily mean that we are living free from sin. That we're living in freedom. It reminds me of how many of you have seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption? Right? Okay? There's a scene near the end where Red, Morgan Freeman's character, is finally released. He's working in a grocery store. Right? And He's, he's free from prison, and he's there working in the grocery store, but in his mind, he is still in prison. And we know this because he can't even go to the bathroom without permission. Because he's still in his mind, he's in prison. He's not free. He was free, positionally, ontologically, but he could not live like a free man. Now John has a fairly simple prescription for how to learn to live in the freedom from sin that Jesus purchased for us. Since God is the opposite of the world, that's the dichotomy here, right? God versus the world. Doing God's will is the opposite of living in the three spheres. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is where the discipline comes in. The discipline of following God's will frees us in practice from that which Christ died to free us from. But you see, doing God's will is a discipline because it doesn't happen naturally. We have to train for it. It's not going to be automatic. It's like lifting. Or it's like prepping to run a 5K or a marathon. Or anything else. Learn to play guitar or whatever. It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by coasting. It's not going to happen just because you... You have a Bible on your shelf and you come to church on Sunday for an hour and listen to me drone on about how you need to do more than just come to church for an hour. We have to take an active role in disciplining ourselves so that we can live free from sin by doing God's will. Now when I say that, 
You've got to understand, that is not anti-grace. Grace is Jesus doing the work that made us free from sin in the first place. And then giving us his spirit to empower us to live in freedom. But I'm telling you to, to, that we need to discipline ourselves. We're not, we're not, that's not in opposition to grace. That's hand in hand with grace. Grace is never in opposition to our efforts. It's what makes our efforts in this regard possible and successful in the first place. Because without grace, it couldn't happen. Our efforts are not earning salvation. They are applying the salvation God has freely given us in Christ into our daily living that we are living daily what we are spiritually through Christ. Now you may recall last year when we were in the book of Acts, we spent a couple of weeks on a rabbit trail about how we understand and do God's will. Now I feel this is such an important topic that next Sunday we're going to take a little break from 1 John for one Sunday and one Sunday only. And we're going to have, I'm going to condense those sermons into a quick refresher on what does it really mean to do God's will. John has made that the key to a life that is living free from the sphere of control of the world, I think it's a critical topic that we have a firm understanding of. So we're going to do a review of that next Sunday. But we live in a world that's under the immediate control of the agency of sin. That's, what, that's the world we live in. And this agency manifests itself in many ways. But often, for us, it manifests itself in the disorder of our desires in these three spheres. Our desires for, for physical satisfaction, our desires for material things, our desires related to our status relative to other people. Those are the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And our job is to discipline ourselves to live in the freedom that Christ already purchased for us with his blood. Doing so is going to require that we choose God's will over our own, which sounds so simple. That will exchange slavery to sin for the freedom that we've already received through God's grace. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That when he died, he set us free from sin and death and the devil. But that freedom that he purchased for us is the kind of freedom that then we have to decide we really want to live in really want to put into practice, that we want to discipline ourselves to have that freedom. And that freedom comes in doing your will over our own when those two things are opposed. When the desires of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life become disordered and want to lead us away from you, instead we discipline ourselves to follow what your word says and to do your will. Help us to be those kinds of people be the kind of people who deeply desire to do your will and to be the kind of people who live in the light and the love and the freedom Christ has purchased for us. We thank you in his